0: What's up, everyone? It is Thursday, June 28th. This is Rafael Garcia and Shwan Humes back for episode 89 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. So, uh, first and foremost, thank you, Shwan, for joining me tonight.
1: No, Thank you for having me. Pleasure always. Pleasure as always.
0: Uh, the late night version, um, you know, we usually bring the show to you probably about three hours earlier on Thursdays, but hey. People got things to do, but we're bringing you a show anyway. As always, thank you for listening to our content. Please be sure to like and share our episode across social media. Um, you can find us at MMA Ratings.net. You will find us on Instagram and um, what's the other one? Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings uh, Schwann. Why don't you let them know where we can find the show?
1: Uh, we got SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes are the three biggest outlets to find the show at.
0: So, we have, a, we have um, quite a bit to talk about today. Um, I do not have an agenda. It's been a long-ass week. So, we're just going to try to fucking wing it, and we're going to do a damn good job at it. First thing I wanted to talk about was the... Eventual, the retirements that we've seen this week—we've seen three guys retire: two former champions, one um, champion or uh, title contender—Rashad Evans, uh, Josh Koscheck, and Johnny Hendricks. All three announced their retirement this week. Um, all three of them were going through some career skids. I want to say Koscheck's is probably the worst because it's been—I think the last yes, person he defeated definitely. was Matt Hughes. So guys have they they've been struggling, they've had their issues with each and every one of them um in their own separate ways. So let's talk about each and every one. First one up, um former light heavyweight champion Rashad Evans and Shuan, why don't you go ahead and start? What are your thoughts about him, his his retirement and his legacy in the sport?
1: Um, I think Rashad is actually a legitimate, you could say he's a legitimate legend. He is a tough winner winning it at the heavyweight division, then going in to win a, t- a light heavyweight title. You know, he's had he's had some really big wins. And his, his biggest contribution, I think, isn't just as a fighter, it's as a personality. He's one of the few fighters who really got interacting with fans, having a character, trying to make that bridge from fighter to analyst as well. I think he was one of the first guys to actually do that and do it well, in my opinion. Um, my biggest issue with him as a fighter was I never quite – he he was as technical as he should have been. He had a lot of technical knowledge. He understood how the rules work. He understood what you needed to do. But his execution of these skills in the fight game, to me, were inconsistent at best. I think he was best when he was working with Trevor Whitman. Trevor Whitman had his, his his boxing really cleaned up, had that boxing-wrestling balance really cleaned up when he was working with him for a while. But um, a lot of Rashad's issues started happening when he lost his step physically. His biggest asset was his athleticism. And once that started going all the holes in his game started becoming very apparent and he just started going on a downhill slide. When he was in his physical prime, even after the loss of Machida, very few guys could handle him. He had some injuries. He had some time away. He lost some of that explosiveness. And all of a sudden you started seeing limitations in his wrestling, limitations in his striking, limitations in his defense. And he started just, he wasn't even competitive. He was just getting blown out by every guy he he got in the cage with, which lets you know that a lot of his success was based off that athleticism and just his toughness. Once those two things started to deteriorate, he was no longer world-class, much less mid, mid-tier mid as a fighter. And that's kind of a shame. But it, it is very impressive how far he got, considering some of the limitations he had technically. But I think he's a legend. And I think his biggest contribution is moving forward as a contributor to the sport.
0: So he's very interesting to me um, because when I think about Rashad Evans, there's one particular... Conversation I remember having about him. I was a fan of him when he was on the show very early um, in his career. I thought he was pretty awesome. Um, you know, I remember his head kick knockout of Sean Salmon, which was uh, crazy and ridiculous. But there's one conversation I remember having about Rashad Evans that kind of threw me and threw me my support behind him early. And that was when he fought Chuck Liddell. And what occurred was I was at work. This is back when I was working at ESPN and the fight was starting. You know, guys were we were around monitors, we were we were getting ready for the fight and I remember turning to one of my coworkers at the time And it was, you know, you know how they do the backstage shot of the fighter walking into the arena for the first time where Rashad was walking into the arena in a suit. You know, he was one of the first fighters to show up in a suit like he was a professional going to work. And I looked at one of my coworkers and they were like, I don't like this guy. And I was like, why is that? Like, I don't know. Something about him just rubs me the wrong way. Now... If you are a white male and you say that about an athlete who has done nothing wrong ever in the history of ever, be aware that you're using coded language. Basically what he was saying is he didn't like Rashad because he was black, in my opinion. He kept calling him cocky, arrogant, using all of the buzzwords that didn't need to be used to describe his so-called animosity towards uh, Rashad Evans, and he was and he was telling me that he hoped Chuck Liddell knocked him out. Well. How did that work out? We remember him. We, we, we remember Evans stretching Liddell in a way that he never had been stretched and probably never been stretched since. Like he stretched that man in that fight, and that right there got me, I jumped up, ran over to his desk, my co-worker's desk at the time, screamed yelled in his face. He probably never spoke to me again after that. I don't even remember. But that's probably the biggest Rashad Evans moment that I remember, sit back and remember, and it's always made me a, a fan of his um, win or lose, which is why it made it so difficult for me to watch him continue fighting and continue struggling through his last, uh, last few fights, because you know, like he looked like an individual where mentally he was there he knew what his body needed to be doing to get the fight to where he wanted to get the fight he knew that he was mentally there but his body just wasn't reacting anymore and he wasn't able to get the work done on a regular basis and that's why it's upsetting to see him finally step away from the sport but i understand it's for the best
1: yeah, uh, he never his image never really recovered from the whole Matt Hughes incident on Tough. I think Matt Hughes labeled him with the cocky, or maybe it was Dana White, combination of those two, and he never really got away from it. Um, I won't always say it's a matter of, of racial issues, but is, as you said before, there are certain fans who accept certain things from one type of fighter. When another fighter does something different, then it's considered disrespectful. You know, Chuck would go around screaming around the cage after he knocked somebody out. And that's funny. That's acceptable. That's him letting out his warrior spirit. Rashad would maybe showboat in the middle of a fight or do do a dance after the fight, and all of a sudden that's cocky and it's disrespectful. When really they're they're just two different sides of the same coin. So I, I think he never. I think his image to a certain degree never recovered from how Matt Hughes portrayed him. Even though from all accounts from fighters and I know fighters who know him, he's a stand-up guy. He's good to his teammates. He was a good coach. He's a good analyst. He's good to people works with as an analyst, he's really, from what I understand, a class act, but I think what Matt Hughes said early on really shaped the image and how he was taken moving forward as an athlete, and he's never really shaken that. He's never really gotten past that.
0: Yeah, and I I definitely agree with you on that. I feel like he never really got past that, even though he tried, and it's, it's interesting because he was kind of cast as the bad guy in the whole John Jones situation, too, but looking back from a historical standpoint, how has that kind of played out? You know,
1: he was yeah, definitely- everything about John was true. He's like, he's stealing my style. He's kind of fake. Y'all don't know the real John. And while John Jones proved to be a superior fighter, I can't say one thing that Rashad Evans has said about John Jones. that has been true. And even if you want to take one step further, he, he didn't. He never disrespected Jackson Wink about how they went about their business. But in one interview, I remember he mentioned that they like to do a lot of creative things and creative approaches and some of those things just don't work for certain fighters. And as, they, as Jackson Week has had a bit of a losing streak in the past couple of years, you see some of the more esoteric strategies they come up with are really based on them having better talent. It's not so much as the better strategy or better technique. It's that better athlete executing. And when that talent started to level off, we started seeing a leveling off in their their, their dominance against martial arts. So a lot of things that Rashad, Rashad Evans has said as an analyst or speaking, breaking down people's games, has been really intelligent, really beneficial, but because of the image he has people tend not to listen to him. But if you look back in hindsight, a lot of the stuff he said whether it's about Rampage, Jackson Wink, John Jones, or just fighting in general has been turned out to be all true. That's
0: the weird thing about it. Like a lot of the stuff, I remember he was one of the first ones to call John Jones like a snake, call him like a um like two-face and all that, but looking back it's like, well, maybe he wasn't wrong um and I definitely think that that's going to be an intriguing um conversation I think he has a lot to offer the sport uh from the booth I definitely think he has a lot to offer in that space um in the future I think he's going to do great work as a commentator um but yeah uh, I definitely I am sad to see his career be, come to an end. But at the same time, I am not mad that it, it, it's coming to an end. I think There's has-
1: one more thing. As a fighter, and I've talked to a lot of boxing coaches about this who saw him fight. And, and I don't want to see – I know I questioned some of his his technical execution, some of the holes in his game, the distance management. That's why he always countered instead of leading because he wasn't really good at gauging distance or working his way in the distance. So he lets you throw something out and counter you. But in, in pointing out these technical shortcomings, I'm also highlighting the fact that he had a very good natural feel and a mind for the intangible aspects of fighting as far as timing. Um, like a big thing with a lot of boxing guys who watch the fight, they're like, he's one of the few MMA guys who actually knew how to have a feel out round. Like nine times a ten, you see two guys fight, they kind of feel it out for a couple seconds and they go, they go all out. Rashad Evans would always be looking for openings, testing your reaction, seeing what you're going to do. And then later in that round, if not later in that fight, he was starting to exploit it. He did it against Forrest Griffin. He did it against Chuck Liddell. He's done it time and time again. So he was a very smart fighter, a guy who understood the ebb and flows of fights and understood the intangible aspects of fights that that determine winning, not just actual kick, punch, or technique or strategy, but the little adjustments and the little flows you feel within the context of a fight. And he's one of the few guys who started the trim of feeling a guy out, setting him up, making reads on the fly. So while he wasn't a very technical fighter, as far as being cerebral and intelligent and aware of patterns and reads and tendencies, he was beyond world-class, and one of the first fighters to really pay attention to that.
0: So let's take this let's segue off of him there, and let's move into the next name, where we have Johnny Hendricks. Um, Johnny Hendricks walked away from the sport after you know he was the welterweight champion. And in many ways, you know, a lot of people feel like he defeated GSP, who many consider one in the conversation for one of the greatest of all time. You know, he slept John Fitch, slept Martin Ketman, had a great fight with Robbie Lawler, defeated him. So, and I mean, some people feel like he lost that fight. But looking back at Hendrick's career, what are your thoughts about him? And what are some of the ideas that come to mind?
1: Well, First of all, he was like a shooting star. I mean, he, I think he had two fights before he got in the UFC. So in his third fight, he's fighting UFC competition. And essentially, I think except for one loss before he went on that huge run. He, he lost a rich the story of all people. Yeah. But other than that, he was like – and he was supposed to be a wrestler, and he was just knocking people out. And he got his way. He's the first person to make GSP look human in almost the entirety of his career except for BJ Penn. And then he goes out, and he has the two back-to-back fights with Lawler, that are fights of the years, and then it's like just as soon as he established himself, where he he was one of the elite welterweights in the world and the champion, it like all disappeared, and he could just never get that magic back. Like I don't know if it's I don't know him personally. I, you know his trainer, Stephen Wright, wonderful world-class trainer, wonderful human being. But it just seems like he could never get back on track once he started losing. It, it's like you went from being the most dominant welterweight in the world to ending your career as a tier. Middle way, and it's like I, I don't have any explanation for how that happened. Technically, he didn't fall off. A lot of it just seemed to be attributed to his lack of, I guess, the lack of discipline and weight setting. I don't know what it was, but I've never seen a guy streak so high. It seems so so effective and technically sound, and strategically sound, and then go the complete opposite way in such a brief period of time. It, it was just amazing to watch. Yeah, like you're, usually you're, there's a sport.
0: you're breaking he's, up a, a little bit so. there, so I want to okay. hop in and I want to hop in there because um. It's interesting what you said because I was listening to. I think Thomas tweeted out about um, what he thought of his career, and he brought it up. Um, he didn't make the accusation that he won. Like a couple things comes to mind when talking about um, when talking about Hendrix's career. He was like, "What about looking at him in a post?" usada way and i looked at that and i was like that's a tough one but i get the point that he's making i mean you do have to kind of say you know what like did the implementation of usada impact his career and if so how much did it impact it because now because you look back at it and that's really when he did fall off so when he started having issues with with the way cutting when he started looking a lot more human and granted yes he never filled a test he never had any um accusations or anything like that around him but uh, a lot of people do point to that and it is something that i think is worth having a conversation in retrospect knowing what we know about the sport today it is something that i think is, is interesting and you wonder um what really occurred during that time
1: yeah you're right you have to ask the question because his performance fell off so badly his, I mean, he went from always making weight to not being able to make a weight. He went from knocking guys out from with one or two hundreds to going five rounds and getting knocked out himself. It was just amazing how much his performance and his athleticism and his power declined. Once again, it's hard for me to say that because he never failed a test. You know? and, never failed a test. You know, like people bash Anderson Silva, and they're like, well, you know, Anderson says, well, I wasn't cheating before, but the fact that you got caught cheating, so now we can throw aspersions at you. Hendrick never got caught. So it's hard for me to really, even though the performance lines up, he never got caught. And so many guys have got caught who we won't give the benefit of the doubt. So how are you still not going to give the benefit of the doubt to somebody who was never caught?
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely there. Definitely there. And um, I think it's all it's all an interesting conversation that's worth bringing up. When you um, look back at Hendrix, what do you think his career would have been like if he would have moved up a weight class sooner?
1: I don't think he was ever big enough for the middleweight division. I, I said this before. I even talked to his trainer about that when he had that win against Hector Lombard. Originally, I was, I was saying that he should fight Dan Kelly next. Dan Kelly was a winnable fight, and they wanted Dan Kelly, but they ended up getting uh, Tim, Tim Boesch, I think. And um, that would have changed things a lot because then he would have I, – I believe he would have had two, two wins in a row at middleweight. And with two wins in a row at middleweight, that changes the whole, whole storyline on where he's going. The biggest thing for him is that middleweight, he had a quickness – and an athleticism advantage, but he wasn't big enough. His power didn't translate to middleweight. He could knock out pretty solid welterweights, but against middleweights, his power wasn't gonna, in my opinion, didn't transfer. Which means he would have to make adjustments to his style. Because when you you can knock guys out, you fight differently. You're not you're, you don't throw a, you only throw a certain amount of punches because you know you knock guys out or beat them up. When you're at a higher weight class, you got to throw more punches. You got to be more defensively sound. You can't just dominate with wrestling because you got guys coming in 25, 30 pounds heavier than you. So even if they're not as good a wrestler, they can get back up. They can take you down. I don't think his style had enough time to be modified for him to be effective. Now, if he planned to move middleweight, he could make adjustments in his style, add things, take things out of his game. But um, I don't know that he ever would have been world-class in middleweight. I think he could have been good, maybe even very good. But that size difference, I mean 25, 35 pounds in some cases – that just, that's too much. And he wasn't, he was a big, he was a big welterweight, but he was not a very big middleweight. And I think he, he would have had a similar track record to what he had when he moved up at this stage of his, at the later stages of his career. I, I just don't think it was a good way for him. I think he was made, made to be a welterweight and now if in Bellator, maybe he can compete because there's a lower level of middleweight, but at the UFC level, there's just too many guys with good enough wrestling backgrounds and top end athleticism and power. I mean, johnny hendrix against yo romero at any point in yo romero's ufc run what would yo romero have done to johnny hendrix
0: oh man that would have ended very badly
1: you know even two years ago johnny hendrix versus robert whitaker you know we're, we're talking about assault and battery. you know we're talking about some <laughs> i mean we're talking about criminal cr- talking about criminal charges at these that guys. point in time we're
0: talking about bona fide violence nothing more nothing else
1: yeah. yeah so I, I don't think it ever was a good move for him the best thing he could have done is stayed at welterweight as long as possible and then if he had to move to middleweight, make a move. But that would have made – would required an adjustment in his style and his approach for him to be even effective at a middling level. Definitely
0: true there. So last person that brings us to is the one and only Josh Koschek. And I'm not going to lie, dude. Um, this is pretty hard. This one – I'm not going to say this is pretty hard for me. But this is the problem. Here, Josh Koschek has always been my dude. Um, he – I don't know why. Maybe it was the jerk aspect in me, but Koshek has always been one of my favorite fighters um, ever since his time on Tough and the way he portrayed himself trying to get into the... Um, get on everyone's nerves. You know, Everyone points to um, Chell Sonnen as the first guy to really be the the heel in MMA. Man, you got to look at Josh Koshek and say, hey, some of the stuff he was doing predates chill Sonnet. and he did it and he did it well and i, and I almost feel like people kind of overlook it because in some regard it's like maybe that's just really who, who he was who he was as a person and since he, he was a jerk everyone knows that he wasn't joking they just kind of overlooked it but we're not talking about his personality we're talking about what he did in the cage, and I always look back at him and I wonder how great he could have been if he would have just gotten some key wins. I remember when he took that fight against Thiago Alves on a couple weeks' notice. I was like, that's a bad fight, but he still took it anyway. Um, I remember when he was the first guy to take a round off of Josh Kyle, off of GSP in years, so he had that to his name as well. And you just gotta wonder, like, how much, how much really, like, how much was this guy set to? Be like How much how much successful was could he have been over the years?
1: I feel bad for him because the other two guys in this list at one time were the best in their division, possibly top five pound for pound at some point. People thought that. And Josh Koschek never was able to reach that level. He just wasn't able to. And much like Rashad, a lot of his success wasn't even his wrestling. It was his athleticism. At the time he came in, he was probably one of the top 2% athletes in the sport as far as the U.S., Guys couldn't deal with his athleticism. And the sad thing is, much like Rashad, he leaned a lot on that athleticism. He never really developed a, a real comprehensive striking game. He got a little bit better, a little bit sharper, had a jab that came up here and disappeared. He had a an atomic bomb for a right hand. But where was the left hook? Where was the footwork? Where were the feints? Where were the counters? He never developed that stuff. He just kind of exploded and ran through guys or took guys down and, and roughed them up with some power. He was never really a refined... Improving mixed martial arts and unlike Rashad, he didn't have that feel for the game He didn't know how to feel out around he didn't know how to read distances and, and and bait people in and Time counters and find the right shot to throw he didn't have that all he had was natural athleticism And I don't know if it's a problem with him He was too stubborn or aka let him down by not developing his technical skills, but he never developed In a manner that allowed him to maximize his athleticism his athleticism was a crutch it, it wasn't a tool to enhance his skills. His biggest contribution as a, as a fighter was he understood the game and he played the game and he maximized his earning by being a heel. That's what he brought to Mixed Martial Arts. He was the first guy to embrace being a heel. Everybody else wanted to be liked and be popular. He didn't care. He wanted to get paid. He wanted to get the big fights. He wanted the high-profile fights. He wanted the high-profile checks. And he did whatever it took to get those. But he was never like – he just he was an elite talent – but he never had elite skills and once again as he started to slow down another better and comparable athlete started getting mma that's when he started getting exposed if you look at it all the fights he won and dominated were against lesser athletes when he started falling facing comparable athletes with decent skill sets he started getting he started getting lit up he started getting handled i mean gsp beat him but gsp wasn't the wrestler he was but gsp was a better all-round fighter and he had comparable athleticism once, once she took that athletic advantage away, he he just wasn't he wasn't much of a threat, and, and that's not be, being harsh. That's being fair. If you watch his fights, there's very little technical progression. He never learned how to really grapple. He never learned how to kickbox. He never really learned how to box.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. There. Um, so I don't I didn't want to stay on those guys all night, but that's definitely some interesting retirements we've had in the sport. Um,
1: you know the running joke now is uh, it's going to be a sad thing when you see them all in the middle-weight, the Bell- Bellator middleweight tournament for a million no,
0: dollars. No, better not. Speaking of Bellator, let's go ahead and kind of segue into that there because Bellator has had a pretty interesting week. First, um, Lyoto Machida goes over to Bellator. Let's start there. Um, the Dragon is riding a two-fight win streak in the UFC, a, a pretty interesting win over Eric Anders, and then the front kick knockout of Vitor Belfort. They're getting a guy who – was the light heavyweight champion. He's actually the man who defeated Rashad Evans and started his downward slope. And now you have him moving over to Bellator. And I wrote about this earlier this week that he's talking about fighting the likes of Fedor and, um, Gagar Mousasi and Roy McDonald. Those are all intriguing fights, but what do you think about his move over to the, um, Bellator in any shape or form?
1: I mean, at this stage of his career, it's a, it's a, it's a good move because Machida, as you saw in the Anders fight, he's not as quick or explosive as he used to be. His style still creates issues because he's a counter guy by nature. So that's always going to allow him to get certain opportunities and to be defensively sound, but he no longer has that explosiveness and that quickness. You can get to Machida and Machida can't fight at a certain pace. He can fight in spots. He can't really fight at a certain pace for three rounds hard or much less five rounds. So moving to, to Bellator, They're still good fighters, but there's not mostly world-class fighters. here. They got like in every division, they got two to five world-class, really world-class guys. So he's not going to be exposed to as many top-end athletes or top-end technical fighters. So the skills he does have physically and the durability he does have is less likely to be tested in the Bellator cage. So he's going to be able to extend his career kind of like Chet Congo did, Ryan Bader did. And it makes sense because... He's already beaten Bader and Bader's got a light heavyweight championship. He's already beaten Mustasi. Mustasi's got a middleweight championship. So you see guys that you defeated going over and, and feasting. How do you how do you how do you not follow them when there's an opportunity to restart your career and he's at the best position he's ever gonna be as far as leverage at this age at this age. He has two fight win streaks, two impressive wins. He's never gonna have more leverage at this day, at this age and time in his career.
0: I can definitely agree with you. Um
1: I, I'm just kind of curious. He's got, he's got a lot of versatility. He, he could fight a Bellator heavyweight if you pick the right heavyweight, and he we already know he could fight a middleweight, and, and he could fight a le- light heavyweight, so there's a lot of options you have with him. He's a very versatile fighter weight-wise, and that's that's kind of a good thing right now. And since he's coming off of wins, if one of the Bellator guys beats him, it still is good because he came off of two straight UFC wins, two, fa- two fairly impressive UFC wins, high-profile wins. So... It's it's a win win for everybody involved. He's going to get paid, and Bellator is going to get a little shine for having Lyoto in in their cage or whatever they call it over there.
0: Yeah, there's definitely always going to be some shine there. Um, do you would you want to see him fight Fedor?
1: It'd be interesting. I mean, Fedor's not a really big heavyweight, so they could do like a catchweight, and um, it it'll be interesting seeing Fedor against a guy who's probably a little bit quicker than him and has kind of a unique standup style. Like, I'd be interested in seeing it. Uh, do you know? I I would be interested in seeing the fight. I'm not saying it'd be one of the best fights you'd see, but it'd be an inch inter- Stylistically, it'd be very interesting to see how that fight goes. And they could definitely sell it. I mean, I know it'd be two older guys, but a lot of fans would turn in to see that to see fatal versus Machida. That that'd be a fight you could sell easily, I think.
0: I definitely think it's a fight you could sell for sure. Um, let's look at. Look what Bellator did um, in reference to their. Announcement with Dan Dazen, however you want to pronounce it. I
1: heard it's presented. Is it the zone? Is somebody told me that's how it's presented? I've heard
0: the zone. I've heard Dazen. I've heard so many different other naming conventions that is just like, just, just said, like, just leave it at Dazen or whatever the hell it is. Let's just leave it at, at that. Um, but Bellator announced a deal with them. And He is, excuse me, that organization is now moving into the streaming space. And what they're doing is they're taking away their tape delay shows and now putting them on a platform where you can pay the streaming costs to catch the content. Um, exclu- you can catch there. The, the pre taped events will now be live, and then they also will have exclusive content up there as well. Too, so like for example, their September 29th card, which features Silver versus Rampage 4, um, Musashi and McDonald, and some of the preliminary bouts for the Welterweight Grand Prix. That's going to be behind that paywall. So, I think this is an interesting idea. I, it's you know, you see more of MMA going behind this paywall, you see more of the combat sports going behind a paywall in general because of the shift in consumption and the shift in television watching as a whole. So that's definitely one thing that is, is worth consideration in this conversation, but they haven't announced how much the um, the platform will cost, they haven't announced. What the totality of the deal yet, but just from a preliminary standpoint, what are your thoughts about uh, Bellator entering the streaming uh, the, the streaming industry?
1: Uh, I mean, it's good for them because they're they're probably it's kind of similar to the ESPN thing, and that that they're getting guaranteed money, which means now you can approach your matchmaking a little bit differently. You can approach how you who you who you bring into the organization and what you do with the organization a little bit differently, because now you have guaranteed money coming in. So you can make certain matchups. You can put certain plans into play that might not pay off right away. That will pay off a month from now two a year from now, two years from now, because you have a steady stream of money coming in as a result of that deal. So that, that should offer them a lot of freedom and hopefully give them some more space to flesh out their divisions by bringing in a higher quality of person, even if they're not name guys, quality guys, because me and you have talked repeatedly about how thin their divisions are. So that should help that. Um, As far as being behind a paywall, I mean, it's a professional, it's a sports profession. And a lot of fans hate how Wild Wild West mixed martial arts is and people not getting paid and things not being set up. But when you become more professional, things like this happen, which means there's going to be a higher cost to the casual fan and to the hardcore fan. You're not just going to get a bunch of free good cards anymore. You're going to have to pay for the good cards. Everybody keeps saying they don't like those Bellator Sideshow cards. Okay. They're going to give you quality cards. You're just going to have to pay before you can see them. So we're going to see how dedicated these people are to the high quality top matchup fights they've been asking for. Cause you used to get some of those for free and now you have to pay almost all the time for them. So we're going to see how invested fans are and, pushing the sport forward and making it legitimate because if they don't make, hit their numbers, it's going to tell you that the audience isn't there and the audience it does have aren't invested enough for it to make a, how do you call it? A financial reef uh, to to be financially rewarding.
0: Yeah, it definitely is um, interesting because it, it. someone described MMA as the sport that's probably most, um, most expensive for people to be a fan of because you don't get content on free uh, television
1: nope not at all (laughs) everything's cable or or stream or something or their personal fight pass or their website everything requires you to make a financial investment and it's just it's just getting even it's gonna be even more of a financial investment so it's very interesting to see how the ratings turn out for this because Really, all, all Dazen's doing is they want content. It's the same thing Fox did. They want content. Bellator is the second biggest name in mixed martial arts right now. And it pr- provides them a leg up over other streaming services that just do boxing because Dazen has boxing. Now they have mixed martial arts. So they have, it's kind of like what ESPN is doing, how ESPN has that edge. They have boxing and they have mixed martial arts. Dazen's the only other streaming service that is offering the, both at a high level. So they're hoping that that's going to generate interest, generate subscriptions. And it'll enable them to have enough content to appeal to both sides. And if you can get MMA guys to get into the boxing or boxing guys to get into MMA, you 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 know essentially helped both sides and you doubled your subscriptions. And that's what their hopes is, that's what their hope is for. But in the short term, it's probably going to hurt a lot of fans. And the funniest thing to me is how everybody complains about the Bellator cards. You know, oh, these are sideshow cards, but they were free, and now everybody's complaining about how much money it's going to cost to watch Bellator now. And i'm like y'all had it free for so long you all took that for granted it's now right. here we are
0: it definitely had it free um for so long and that's no longer the, the that's no longer the case so it'd be interesting to see how this impacts how this impacts the sport across our board somebody else brought up a good question too whether or not this money will be going back to the fighters again We don't know. I saw somewhere like this was supposed to be like a pretty big deal for the organization, but we haven't heard how much it's worth yet. So I'll be interested in seeing just how much money goes back to these fighters. Scott Coker did say that this money could be used or will be used to begin um, looking at some additional free agents in the future.
1: All I can say is the same thing I, I always say when it comes to money for these fighters. I understand you want to be on the big show. I understand you want to fight the name guys. But you forget, this isn't yet yeah, your dream, yet yeah, your passion. But if this is what you do and this is how you're trying to make a living, it's a job down. Whoever will pay you the most and give you the most return on your investment of time and physical damage is the person you need to go with. I don't care if it's RFA, I don't care if it's overseas, I don't care if it's ABC, I don't care if it's M1. Whoever will pay you because you can't feed your family off of memories and you can't make sure your wife. And your family, your parents are safe off off of good times. You need to go get paid and stop doing these million and billionaires' favors, so you can dance on their stage. This is a business, and this is a very short career. This ain't like being an accountant. You've been accountant your entire life. You can't be a top level fighter. Most of the time, it's on average probably like four to five years max. So these guys can't afford to be doing favors and and helping them out. Help yourself out. Help your family out, and go where they pay you the most money. Regardless of what platform it's on, definitely,
0: definitely go and make some money. Um. So my fault. I'm moving forward. Let's let's keep on going there because. Did you watch Tough? Uh, not Tough this week, but the Dana White Contender Series. I don't want to harp too much on that. The only thing I want to kind of touch on is the fact that um. The fact that Valentina Shevchenko's sister was able to um, earn earn a contract. What do you know about
1: her? I mean, she's and a world class. I'm
0: going to ask you because no one covers women mixed martial arts quite like like you do. So, what do you know about Shevchenko's old, older
1: sister? Well, a lot of people forget she she took a break. She was she fought she fought earlier in her career. She took like a two or three year break, if I remember, and went back to focusing on kickboxing. She's once again like a legitimately world class striker, and and she's got some. She's got some decent grappling skills. She's, she's still developing her all round awareness as grappling. She's not as good as Valentina at this stage, but she's a world-class athlete. She's a world-class striker, and she's got 10, 10, 15 years of competing in combat sports at a world-class level. So I think she's a definitely good addition to the UFC. I knew she was going to get in because she's, she's a named person. She has a name. Even though Shevchenko isn't big in the UFC, Shevchenko is a name and has some weight. She has that name. She's a sister of her, and she's got some credentials. And it's, it, as much as the divisions have grown for the women, they're still, for the most part, very thin. They, they don't have a lot of people who are legitimate contenders, not like 155 at men's or 145 at men's or 170 at men's, where you have 10, 12 guys who compete for the title in any given time. None of those divisions are as, as deep. So they're looking for bodies to fill and bodies who have – like you said before, a little bit of appeal, charisma, a look, and at least enough legitimate skills where you can market them as threats to the potential champion. So I thought her being in was a guarantee, whether it was an exciting fight or a dominating fight or a back-and-forth fight or a boring fight. I was almost 100% sure no matter how it went, as long as she won, she was getting in the UFC. That, that was already set up, in my opinion. The one, thing, the, the one thing that actually stood out to me the most was, uh, I didn't know, I can't remember the heavyweight fighter's name, but the heavyweight fighter who won his fight and then got sent to Tough. That really was really shocking to me. Yeah,
0: I can't think of the name. I can't think of the name
1: either. But you come on the show, and you know they say, well, this guy won, but he was boring. This guy won, but it was too close. This guy won, but he needs work. This guy came out, put on a dominant performance, put a stamp on the performance. As a heavyweight, a division that is thin on fighters, and they sent him to the tough house as a, as a reward. Yikes! That that's what tells me that if you don't have a name or you don't have some kind of some kind of fan base, they're not trying to go off performance. It's how much appeal do you have? How many fans do you have? What kind of news cycle would this make if we put you in? Greg Hardy had a win, and Greg Hardy was talked about being moved into the UFC. This guy had an equally impressive knockout. And you're sending him to the tough house how does that make any sense
0: definitely how does that make any sense there and it's it's there's no consistency
1: there's no consistency, there's no consistency. In how they pick people
0: there's no consistency at all it would be, be interesting to see what uh if that ever kind of comes out what is the what is the rhyme and reason Behind that, there isn't any consistency at all. And and we go back to the guy who retired after um, his fight a couple weeks back. I really hope that that guy kind of turns around. And I really hope that someone, um, and I really
1: hope that. I understand how people do it, because even if you don't get a contract, you got a high profile win on a very popular show, which in theory should give you some weight when you're fighting on smaller shows. But the point of it is to get a contract in the UFC and I can see people maybe backing off of it a little bit because there, there seems to be no clear path to getting on there unless you have some kind of name or media energy behind you. Because I've seen guys be exciting. I've seen guys dominate. I've seen guys show all the skills, win fights, and not, and not get picked. And then I see other people who may have been impressive but no more impressive than somebody else, and they're in the show. They're in the UFC but they happen to know somebody. They happen to have a name behind them. They happen to have some media energy behind them. They're related to somebody in the UFC. And it's, it's hard to overlook these sort of facts when you're, when you're thinking about whether you should put yourself at risk to be on the show. Yeah, in the short term, it might get you some short money, but you don't know win or lose what's going to happen to you. And it, it's just a risky proposition to me. And the reason I said last week I don't like the show is because there's no consistency in how they pick people. First is you need to be exciting. This, second is you need some work. Third, you weren't dominant enough. Fourth, you were boring. And then you see somebody with a name or with some kind of connection get in regardless of how their performance goes as long as they win. And that, that's frustrating to me as a, as a person who watches the show and gets invested in these fighters, to see people put on the performances necessary to win and get in the UFC and then be pushed aside or told, come back later. This is combat sports. You don't have many years to come back later.
0: Yeah, you definitely don't. Um, let's move along, and let's kind of look at some other things that are going on in the sport this week. I have to kind of pull up
1: a site. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Joe Del Gu- Guide and uh, Jessica I. She uh, pulled off her second win at flyweight over this weekend, and it, it worked out perfectly because I wrote an article saying why Jessica Rose Clark should not take that fight, and pretty much everything I laid out was exactly why she lost that fight. And she was at that point ranked number eighth in the UFC, and could have demanded a bigger name fight. And she took the fight with Jessica I, and uh, now it's back to the to the back of the line, trying to get some momentum and hopefully get in title contention in the next year, year and a half. As a result,
0: so um, yeah, I definitely saw you tweet that out.
1: Yeah, I still talk to Joe pretty often about it, and uh, I I've. I've been pretty hard on Jessica. I've pretty much never gotten a fight. She's had been in wrong, and usually I picked against her. But the biggest issue has been, in my opinion, a, m- a mental issue. But at bantamweight, she was too small. She had no margin for error. Those girls were too big that her power didn't transfer. Her physical strength didn't transfer. Any mistakes she made on the feet or on the ground had huge consequences. At flyweight, those, those consequences don't exist. She's used to getting punched by the hardest punches of Bantamweight. These girls can't really hurt her. They can't control her. They can't really take her down. They can't really strike with her. This is a really good chance for her to be a truly elite fighter and potentially a title contender at this rate, as long as she stays together mentally and stays focused. And I think Joe being in her corner helped out a lot. uh, As long as she does that, she's going to be very hard to beat, just from a physical perspective. She has advantages over almost everybody else ranked in the top 10 of the division right now. So this is a very good move for her. This is a very big win, and I, I really think she's turning the corner in the division she should have been in for the past couple of years. And I've been saying this for like four or five years. I said, she never should have been in band weight. She should have waited till the UFC had a weight class that she fit in because she was going to lose and lose badly. And I'm glad they finally have a weight class and she can show what she can really do. But as I said, um, it has was very impressive. Um, I'm a Jessica Rose Clark fan. I, I've seen the improvements she's had, but the reason I thought she was going to lose was a lot of her wins had been based on her facing underskilled fighters. Paige Van Zandt, not a very technical fighter. Beck Rawlings, not a very technical fighter. Two fighters who weigh heavily with their athleticism and physical skills, and Rose Clark was too big and too durable for them to make their physical skills Effective in a fight she was too strong for wrote pages Her explosiveness to really make it be a factor She could control her and rough her up and Becca Rawlings always gotten by on being physically stronger and being able to back people up with Her power against a bigger stronger fighter. She wasn't able to do that It came down to skills and neither fighter had the skills or the seasoning to hold hold their own with her on the ground or in stand-up exchanges Jessica I never had any of those technical shortcomings. She was strong enough, she was big enough, she was a better athlete, she was the better striker in my opinion. And if nothing else, she was at least as good, if not better, on the ground. It was just a really bad matchup for Rose Clark. One that I I didn't think stylistically or physically she had the tools to win. It was just a matter of whether Jessica I was going to keep it together from round one to round three. Because there's always going to be a spot in the fight where you get hit, you get clipped. That person has a few moments of success, and usually in those moments. When the fight goes bad, it keeps on going bad for Jessica I. But at this weight, where she has some margin for error, where she can she gets taken down, she has a physical strength where she can get back up, where she can fight off a takedown, or she has the power that if somebody starts putting shots together, she can land one or two shots and can back them off. That gives her, that gives her a little bit of breathing room. And that breathing room allows her to maintain her poise, maintain her focus, and execute from beginning to end. And that's what I feel has been the biggest difference in her performance she knows that she has some room to err. Before she knew, I get dropped. I can't come back from this. These girls hit too hard. I don't hit hard enough to get back in the fight. I get taken down. These girls are too physically strong. I'm not strong enough to get back up when these girls take me down and start controlling me. At this weight, she knows she can get back up. She knows she can get on top. She knows she can submit submit them. She knows she can hurt them on the feet. She knows she can take whatever they have to offer on the feet. And that freedom allows her to perform at the fullness of her abilities. Knowing that you can't handle someone's power or someone's athleticism or someone's size instantly makes you gunshot because you know the first mistake you make could very well cost you the entirety of the fight. So as I told your trainer, now that she has those, she has that breathing room, now that she has that faith that she can get control back, now that she knows that she can hang in these spot, these tougher spots, her, her mindset's clearer. She's more focused. She's executing. And she doesn't have as much pressure because she knows she can make a mistake and still win.
0: Can you hear me?
1: Yes, sir. i just been talking about Jessica I. Can you hear me OK?
0: Yeah, I got you. OK, hold on one second. Let
1: me see something. I had a slight time
0: there. OK, what about now? I got you. OK, so.
1: Yeah, I, I just was filling up space, talking, breaking down the Jessica I Jessica Rose Clark fight, explaining why she won it and what the difference is for her in Bantamweight to her to move to Flyweight, and why that's made her a better fighter mentally and Lee technically. Lee, me... You were saying, sir? Hello? Yeah, I guess Rafael's having a technical issue, but um, since since he's having a technical issue, we'll just go on to the uh, Leon Edwards-Donald Cerrone fight. Uh, I was wrong on that one. I really thought Cerrone was going to be able to walk Edwards down. The biggest issue I'm having with Cerrone now is he was never the most durable fighter, and I've said that many times over his career, and it seems like he's lost the durability he's had. He can still take shots and and work through them, but he can't. It seems like every shot hurts him now. Shots used to back him up. Shots used to scare him off, but now it seems like every shot he gets hit with is capable of putting him out or doing at least enough damage to put him in a position to be put out. And at the weight class he's fighting at, he that's not, that's not acceptable. I believe for him to be effective, he might have to move back to lightweight. And even now, I don't think his speed and athleticism is good enough to be lightweight long term. But he, he's got some tough decisions to make ahead of him because if, he's, if his chin isn't gone, his style kind of guarantees a certain level of contact. And if he can't take damage anymore, he can't. He's not a big enough hitter to put people away with one or two shots. He needs volume. He needs time. He needs space. And if he can't do those things, he's not going to be able to be successful in a world class level.
0: Hey, can you hear me there, Sean? Yes, sir. Yeah, sorry about that. I was having technical issues. Um, not quite sure what you were no talking about. I
1: I just broke down Donald Cerrone and Leon Edwards ah. at, right after I got done talking about Jessica I and Jessica Rose Clark.
0: Okay, good stuff. Good stuff. Um. I've cut, I, we're I'm we're veterans fight. here. We fill space.
1: When something goes right. wrong, we just fill the space. We're nope. veterans here.
0: And I totally blanked on that um, on that fight card this weekend, um, and I was worried because as I watched the fight, I'm like, "Yo, they're gonna give this fight to Donald Cerrone." I was picking on Dan Hardy because he was definitely being the biggest homer he could possibly be in talking about um, talking about the fight because he always he was he was overly excited for every little thing that. Um, that Donald was doing, but I thought Leon was doing more in key key components. Thankfully, the judges did as well, and we didn't end up with a um, controversial decision. But uh, what would you do next with Leon Edwards?
1: Um, I know he called that Jorge Masvidal. I don't know if that win – I mean, it's a good fight. It's a name fight. I don't know that that win actually – Moves him further up the chain. The biggest problem for him is I, I don't think he, as I said last week, I don't think he matches up very well with any of the guys who are considered elite in the division, and I don't think he's got a big enough Q rating to demand any of the guys who are elite in the division. Um, I, I would say the best fight for him right now would be Masvidal, or maybe a. I don't know if he's fought Neil Magny yet, but if he hasn't, Neil Magny would be a winnable fight. Um, those those two would be good fights, and to see if he if he's really the goods, or or his win was more of a matter of Donald Cerrone's deterioration more so than than leon edwards development as a fighter because at this stage of donald cerrone's game he he's not getting leaps and bounds better in fact he's taking little steps backwards physically and to a certain degree technically so that win might be more of donald cerrone, tells us more about donald cerrone than it tells us about leon edwards at this stage and once again donald cerrone is not a true welterweight so that plays a factor in it as well i, I like to see him against another younger fresher guy to see if the improvements we saw Saturday hold, or Saturday or Sunday, I forgot, hold up against another guy who's a little bit fresher and has a little bit mo- more in the tank physically.
0: True. I, um, who would you put him up uh, up against next?
1: Mass Masvidal or Magny, I think, would be the best option. I mean, I guess if Steven Thompson is looking for a comeback fight, that'd be that'd be an, a good option too, a bigger name option. And uh, Steven Thompson needs to put some wins together so he can stay in the title mix, but. Yeah, at the at, at the high end, Stephen Thompson. At the low or medium end, I'd say Magni or Masvidal.
0: Okay, all right there. So um, something else I wanted to cover on this weekend's show was Bellator's main event on Saturday where we have Limale McFarlane fighting against um, Alejandra. What's her last name?
1: Laura, if I recall correctly. Yes, Alejandra Laura
0: uh for the organization's flyweight title if you've been following Bellator's M- 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 Bellator's um Instagram and their social media channels over the past week they've really been hyping um McFarland up She's 7 and 0 coming in as a 7 and 1 uh fighter uh what do you think about this bout there i'm very familiar with McFarland because her her um exposure in competitive grappling, mainly EBI. But do you think she's someone that a, such a big brand could be built around?
1: Uh, yeah. I, I, as a person who focuses a lot on women's mixed martial arts, in, in the flyweight division, UFC included, I'd say she might be, at worst, top five, maybe top three. I really think that there's maybe three or four girls in the UFC who I think have the skill set and the physical tools to compete with her. Um, Jessica I probably, Valentina Shechenko, of course. Um, Roxanne Matafari doesn't have the athleticism, but she has the experience and the all-around skill set and strategy. Sajar Eubanks has the athleticism. I don't know that she has the skills. And Nico Montano, I think, has a good balance of youth and skills and athleticism. But outside of those, those three or four girls, I think she'd essentially run, run rough, roughshod over the rest of the UFC flyweight division, to be honest, in my honest opinion. She's that good. She's one of the better, if not best, grapplers in the world. And, and her improvements on the stri- on the feet have been have just been amazing. You don't usually have a striker, a grappler of her caliber, be this comfortable. And you see certain grapplers who come in world class grapplers. You see them striking. You're like, oh yeah, they're real nice. They're very good, but they're they haven't been taking a lot of damage. She's been in fights with girls who have legitimate stand up chops, and girls who are willing to get in exchanges, and girls who are big, strong, and physical. And she's shown that she has not just the skills to attack them, but she has the mentality and the durability to fight back. Teddy Atlas, famous boxing coach, always says, everybody can fight, whether it's in the cage, and the ring, or the street. Everybody can fight. The question I always ask is, can you fight back? And when someone's pushed McFarland, whether it's trying to rough her up on the ground or overwhelm her on the feet, she has always had not just a technical answer, but a mental answer of, I'm going to fire back and take control of this fight, physically. Um, her work in the clinches is very amazing. And for a woman who doesn't look particularly big or physically intimidating, she's a very punishing fighter in the clinches and on the ground. She will choke the life at you. And if she can't choke the life out of you, she will beat the life out of you on the ground. And it's very impressive considering how she is as a person, how she carries herself, that she has such a a savage and punishing style. She has a real mean streak when she gets in there. And every fighter says that, but she actually has one.
0: Her grappling style is a lot like that too. If you watched her back in EBI, she was very, um, she's very physically imposing on her uh, opponents and you really saw that in all of her grappling matches
1: yeah she doesn't just and and i'm not nearly the grappling expert that you are but i watch her and she doesn't like some people you see they out athlete you or they out slick you they're just so tricky and awkward she literally handles people she puts them down controls them works them over does it in the technical manner but she physically dominates you while she's technically dominating you it's it's amazing to watch it is and it doesn't change when you add punches she is if not as savage she is more savage once you involve strikes in it whether she's taking them or giving them i really think she could be a a breakout star for them and i think she's the kind of person where they'll start asking questions like well how would the ufc champion hold up against mcfarland this might be an issue where bellator really has the better class of champion in in their division which isn't the case in all their other weight classes
0: well, you could say that about welterweight.
1: Yeah, yeah, you could say that. That's true. That is true. That That's one of the ways you could definitely say that about. You can't say about middleweight. I definitely can't say about lightweight, though. Light, light heavyweight, either.
0: Nah, true. Very true. But you can definitely say that about um, welterweight. That's one space where they can say, hey, we have the uh, top champion middleweight. Middleweight could be up in the air, too. It could, could be closer be. Than, than, than some people think.
1: Yeah, but... Uh, but in other case, she, she has a good, she's attractive. She's very friendly. And, and I've only talked to her a little bit online. She's very friendly and polite and respectful. She can fight, she has that mean streak, and she's high level skill. It's not like the physicality overwhelms the technique. She has world-class technique and world-class durability and, and, and physicality.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely-
1: The question- um, oh, Go ahead.
0: Cause it's like, she's definitely someone I would love to bring on to the show to, um, to talk to
1: she she's willing to do, we, you just have to go through some red tape I, I've talked to her it's just there's some red tape you gotta go through unfortunately
0: dog I hate red tape like, like you know me I can't stand that bullshit but we'll figure it out and see if we can get her
1: on yeah, it, it, but before the I get back on this I, I, I have to say this because I know some fighters listen to the show some managers listen to the show there's very few shows that actually give attention to Bellator, female fighters, write articles on them, do analysis, talk about them in extended periods, or, or any female fighter who, who's not a huge name fighter, UFC, Bellator, anywhere. Like, I routinely write about them. I have, like, 40, 50, 60 articles breaking down women fights, women fighters, giving them a lot of attention, a lot of shine. We talk about it on the show all the time. So, if anybody's listening, y'all could really do us a favor and assist in getting some people who are, who are interested in your fighter and telling your fighter's story, and talking your fighter's fights on their show. There's a lot of people who give y'all lip service, but we're interested in actually sharing that story and getting y'all out there and giving the attention, the respect you 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 need. If you don't believe me, look at the articles I write, listen to the shows we've had. We're we we're always talking about this stuff. I'm giving it tons of time on our show. And a lot of other shows ain't doing that. A lot of other shows skip over those those women fights, female fights.
0: Definitely, definitely on that. So, is there anything else from this Bellator card that stands out to you that that you would want to kind of uh, address?
1: I actually did an article um, because I, I mentioned it last week. I did two articles: one for Combat Press and one for um, one for MMA Ratings. One article for Combat Press was talking about the seven things that Christina Williams needs to do to be Valerie Letourneau. L- 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 for MMA ratings, I did a do's and don't edition for what Valerie Turno needs to do and what she does not need to do to beat Christina Williams. The reason I'm focused on that fight is I believe that whoever wins this fight is going to be the next challenger for the title. Um, it'd be interesting if it's Christina Williams because she's only had – after this fight, she'll have three fights in Bellator. And she wasn't supposed to win any of those fights. She wasn't supposed to beat Emily Ducote. Ducote was a second-ranked girl in the d- division. Who had just lost to McFarlane? She wasn't supposed to beat her. She wasn't supposed to beat Heather Hardy. They brought her in to lose to Heather Hardy. And she had two back to back high profile wins over high profile fighters. And now she's fighting Valerie Letourneau, who challenged for the UFC strawweight title before. So she's getting another high profile fight. And if she wins this one, they won't have anybody else to put in with her other than fi- having her face McFarlane because McFarlane will be the champion. And she's beaten the would have beaten the biggest star in the division, which would have been Hardy, beaten the second-best fighter in the division, and beat the most experienced fighter in the division, all in less than a year and a half. So she would be the next title challenger automatically if she win. Valerie Letourneau was a big signing. Everybody made a big deal when they brought Letourneau over because Letourneau had, been, had had gone on such a run in the UFC. But she beat Williams, who's on a two-fight winning streak and on a high-profile two-fight winning streak – and being a big signing, she will be the next challenger. So whoever wins this fight will be challenging for the title next. There's a reason they put this fight right underneath the McFarland-Laura fight, and that's what makes it one of the most important fights in in women's flyweight divisions. Because while the UFC's division's been held up because Montano's been injured and recovering, Bellator's division has been moving on. McFarland will already have a defense before the UFC champion has the defense. And by the time that that event's over, she already know her her next challenger for her second event if she wins the fight. But either way. As far as the title moving, Bellator has done a much better job keeping their flyweight division in order and keeping it moving in a direction as far as developing challengers, setting up the next challenger, setting up the next big fight in the division. They've done a much better job than that, than the UFC has.
0: And it's it's, um, it's interesting because I think that we will begin to see the women's divisions kind of flesh out outside of the UFC because I think, I mean, we've talked about this. The UFC has a, I'd say an agenda, but an agenda behind who they promote and they may not always be promoting the most qualified candidates to the top.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, even we talked about Shevchenko, Shevchenko is a world-class striker. She's a world-class fighter at Bantamweight. She hasn't done anything. She beat the easiest fight at Flyweight. She fit, beat a fighter who shouldn't even been in there. I don't care who anybody else is beating Flyweight. Whoever is, whoever else has a win at Flyweight has a more legitimate win than Valentina Schenchenko, who is only getting an opportunity based on A, what she did in Bantamweight, and B, because she's attractive and has a fan base. She hasn't really earned a title shot at Flyweight. She hasn't. But the UFC is trying to get buys. They're trying to build fan bases they're trying to appeal to a segment of the fans. So they're willing to bend the rules and have nonsensical matchups to get the belt in certain people's hands or get certain people in positions to fight for the titles. And I'm I'm not blind. I see that. And is a good enough fighter to earn a spot in the flyweight division for a title, but she hasn't earned it. She beat a girl was not who was not UFC caliber and now they're saying she should get a title shot. Based off of what? And I'm a Shevchenko fan, but based off of what?
0: Based off of what?
1: You know, and and I hate to toot my own horn, but I pay a lot attention to a lot of women's mixed martial arts. A lot of analysts, a lot of people on Twitter argue with me. A lot of people who host shows and do analyst work complain to me. And I'm like, dude, you haven't written 10 articles on women's fighting in the past five years. You can't tell me about what what I know about who ranks where and who's a good fighter who's not. You don't pay any attention to these people until certain names come up. So if I'm at, if I'm saying that she doesn't deserve a shot, I'm not UFC brass. I don't have any power, but I guarantee you, I know more than probably 95% of the combat sports analysts when it comes to women's mixed martial arts. So if I'm saying she she hasn't proven anything, there's a better than there's a better than average chance that I'm right that she need she has more work to do, and I'm saying she has more work to do, and I say that totally acknowledging her skills and what she's accomplished at Weight. but she hasn't accomplished nothing at flyweight. So she needs to get a legitimate win before she even mentions challenging for a title.
0: Well, hopefully, we see some um, some of that stuff uh, shake itself out because.
1: We will probably not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why you gotta just. Page Aunt,
1: like if Page Van Aunt would have beat Jessica Rose Clark, she'd be challenging for the title right now.
0: <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're definitely right about that. So uh, let the let our listeners know, man. What else are you working on this week, and where can they find your 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 work?
1: Um, you can find my my work. The people gave gave me my my original shot and got me into this writing and pulling my what hair I have left out of my head. MMA ratings. I do the large majority of my work for them. Um, of course, I have the piece on Valerie Letourneau and uh, Christina Williams, and uh, I you should read it. I'm not saying it just because I wrote it. I'm saying it because people who are coaches, people who are scouting fighters for potential fighters who are scouting these girls, they contact me and they say, Hey, before you release this article, let me see the rough draft. Cause I want to get a better idea of what my guy needs to do in case they have to fight this person moving forward. And after seeing the last couple you did for Esparza, Gadelia, and Grasso, you're to something. So I just, I just, I just want to see what you have to say about it and see if we're on the right path. So I'm not just writing it from my, Opinion and what I think is better than average and what I think makes sense I'm actually writing it to the point where coaches trainers and other fighters are like, well, let me get a let me Let me get a copy of this Let me see this so I can show it to them and maybe we miss something So you're getting top-notch analysis and breakdown as it pertains to strategies techniques and adjustments that need to be made in fights But I have that one. I have the one on Christina Williams on combat press and I will have I actually did an article on the Clarissa Shields based off the fight she had last Friday which is my first boxing article I've done ever since I started writing. So
0: that was a so hell that, of a good that's fight. All I ever
1: that was a hell oh, of a good Oh, it was a really fight. good fight. They didn't give her opponent any credit. She was doing some real work in there, and they just could not say Clarissa Shield's name enough. I'm like, you know the other girls landed punches, right? Like, didn't she it, drop her in the first round? She dropped her, and throughout the fight, she was landing some counter left hooks. She was going to her body all fight long, and she's like, well, some reason, Clarissa, mouth, Clarissa Shield's mouth is wide open. I don't know why she's tired. Well, the girl landed like 40, 40 body punches. That's why she's tired, because she getting hit. She's having to work. It's like they just – it was a good win for Shields. I give her full credit, but they did not give her opponent nearly enough credit for the work she did in that fight. How old is Clarissa Shields? Uh, she's young. She's like t- maybe 20, 21. She's, she's real young. She's like 21, maybe 22. She can't be past 22. I don't know for has sure, she, but I don't think she's past 22. Has she
0: ever talked about MMA? Because I remember I saw the video of her and Cyborg sparring. Has she ever talked about MMA in, in any shape or form?
1: I mean, she's talked about it, but I think the the plan is if, if Chris Cyborg can come over and win and maybe win a big fight or win a fight or two and get a title by some chance because women's boxing is dinner than women's mixed martial arts. That they could have a super fight between her and Chris Chris Cyborg because she sparred with her before and Chris Cyborg showed her some grappling before.
0: Interesting. What do you think that would look like?
1: In a boxing match, it'd be similar to uh, it'd be similar to the uh, Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor, except unlike Floyd, Shield it'd be more exciting because Shields wants to fight. She will. She's a world class boxer with world class boxing skills, and she will put those secondary. To getting in your face and putting a fist in your face that's what she wants she wants to beat you up and show you that she's running the show and you have no chance to beat her so she's going to make a fight it won't be she's not giving up rounds she doesn't care about. she wants the money but she wants to, to prove a point this is what i do i'm the best doing it so she'll give cyborg chances to win but but the gaps in their skill levels is quite noticeable there's a video of them sparring and you can see that cyborg's educated and has some skills but you notice the gap in the seasoning and the awareness in the layer of the, the layers of skill when they spar. You see that Cyborg has some, and she's great for MMA, but there's she's light years behind Shields as far as actual technique. But S.H.I.E.L.D. Shields will Shields will go to war with you, and that'll be what gives Cyborg her chance to win the fight.
0: Interesting, there. Interesting. Um, so, I am. I have not done anything for MMA. I cannot talk. I have not done anything for my ratings this week. I've been kind of swamped and catching up on some other stuff, but um, I will be back covering them next week. I want to do a piece on Elima uh, I- 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 Lay, seeing how, seeing what she does on tomorrow to see how she comes out of that fight. As always, um, I'm covering professional wrestling, covering uh, uh, content all all over the, all over the place. So um, be sure to catch what you can from
1: all the other outlets that I work with. Real quick, actually, real quick. I look forward to seeing you. You do some good work, man. I, I really, I really like the perspectives you take on things. It's not just analysts or big news. You're, you're trying to look past, look past the surface and ask them quite tough questions. As far as the articles about the women, the male gay stuff, you, you take unique approaches to it. And a lot of guys like to just touch on things. You actually will have the conversation and continue the conversation at every opportunity you have to discuss it. You don't just touch on it and then, well, I mentioned it once. It's like no. Two weeks later, he's like, "I want to know how these women feel about this guy being a part of the UFC now." When everybody yeah, else forgot agree. about it, I
0: still want that conversation know. to be had. It's funny because I had a conversation with um, Rich Byrne today, who is the, um, uh, I guess, the president of Kasai Pro, one of the big, one of the newer up-and-coming grappling organizations in the industry. And he has some good things to say about my work. Not to kind of toot my own horn, but it was interesting hearing that because you know you don't get to hear. I don't hear that a lot. I see all the. Foolish comments that go up on the pieces I I put out there. I see how many times I get called out of my name or whatever. So it's uh someone. Oh, yeah. say yeah, I I you saw know.
1: your I saw your illegal immigrant comment. That was hilarious. Had me laughing at work.
0: Dude, it's the truth. It's the truth. I was just talking about that today um, in the gym. It's a hundred and ten percent the uh, truth. You can't tell me you train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu but you hate um, illegal immigrants. You can't. Yeah. I'm sorry. I,
1: I know. I know. I was looking to see how many replies. I'm like look back an hour later, not too many replies. To this one, it's nope, weird. Ain't nobody
0: got anything to say.
1: It's, they don't want to get caught on. They don't want to get the screenshot. That's what they don't want to have
0: happen. I hope, <laughs> and I was hoping somebody would say something.
1: Go to your academy, end up getting jumped.
0: That's what I was about to say. Like I hope somebody would say something smart, but nobody, nobody uh stepped it, up to the a, plate.
1: After that, after that lady got her career ruined by taking that water from that little girl, calling cops on her. Ain't nobody that stupid. Ain't, ain't nobody, nobody taking their chances. That.
0: Not at all. Um, so let me real quick man. Let me get your your feedback on the Paul Felder versus Mike Perry fight We didn't get to talk about it. this is something I, I wanted to bring up as well
1: I really feel that Paul Felder is getting the screw stuck to him to be honest he's he's been a stand-up guy and they're putting him in a I mean it, to me it's a lose-lose situation. He could win this fight because he's the fresher fighter He is a better technical fighter. He's a better technical striker, but the problem with Felder is Felder likes to fight he likes to exchange. He will stay in the pocket to get an extra shot on you to prove a point. He's, Mike Perry isn't the most technical fighter. He, he's had some injuries. He's slowed down a little bit. But Mike Perry is still a massive, savage puncher. He's bigger. He is stronger. He's more durable. I think he's a better athlete. And we've already seen what happens with guys who are strikers and light contact, and what happens to them when they're fighting welterweights. Even, even when they outclass the welterweight in skill, that size difference, that power difference, makes every fight difficult look at uh Cerrone versus Matt Brown Cerrone's a much better striker and fighter than Matt Brown how much punishment did he take in that fight how much punishment did he take in that fight against Rick Story that's my concern for Felder that he's going to be in a with a fight and he might get he he might have career altering damage done depending on how that fight goes and I have the same concern for Mike Perry because Mike Perry's been in so many wars would if Felder catches him with some vicious knee I mean each guy could really lose their ranking in their division and have their career altered because they're fighting a very dangerous, heavily mean-streaked, striking-oriented fighter. It's a great fight for fans, but it's the kind of fight that could deter maybe take some of the elite talent and kind of have it beaten out of them in a fight like this. So it's a really risky fight for both guys. And Felder's doing it because he wants a fight. Uh, same thing with um, Perry. He wants a fight. So the UFC is taking advantage of their want wanting to be in a fight by making them take one of the more dangerous fights they could take at this stage of their careers. And I think it's kind of irresponsible and unfair of them.
0: Here's a question I have. Why did they pull Vic and put him in with Gagey and not Paul Felder?
1: I have a question. Why did they take Aliquinta instead of putting Paul Felder in for the title against Khabib?
0: Well that was according to that was supposedly because Paul Felder wasn't ranked high enough
1: that is nonsense that doesn't make any sense
0: that's that's the that's the reasoning that that was given because the commission said that Paul Felder was not ranked high enough which i mean the ufc could have said hold on one second made a phone call and changed the damn rankings cuz their rankings but that's neither here nor there. That was the uh, explanation that was provided.
1: You, you never go with the highest ranked fighter. You go with the person who will take the fight. They didn't even give him a chance. I don't want to hear that ranking nonsense. It, it, so he's, he's been chipped out of two fights through no fault of his own. It's not his fault he doesn't have ranked opponents on his resume. They haven't given him those guys to fight. That's not his fault. So he missed out on a chance for the title. Now he missed out on a chance of fighting Gaethje. He's got to fight a welterweight, a very big, hard-hitting welterweight. On At, how many weeks' notice? Like it's, it. It just seems like they're trying to. I know they like him, but it's you. You wouldn't be able to tell by the way they treat this dude. And the
0: thing,
1: was, Al- go, ahead. go ahead.
0: What cracks me up is that they give him a live mic every now and then with him doing commentary. I just want him to go off like pipe bomb, CM Punk style.
1: Yeah, I mean, he might he might as well because being a company man and and having fan friendly fights and being a respectable and a presentable analyst that's got him nothing he's had two fights canceled missed out on the title shot missed out on the big high profile fight with justin gaethje to now fight mike perry like it's like somebody hates you in this organization dude i don't know what you did but somebody hates you and, and like i said he can win the fight but it's one of those fights where enough damage can be received or given on either side where either guy can, can lose some of their shine as a result like you know neither one of these guys is afraid of contact so you have a very high level busy technical striker in Felder and you have this unorthodox highly athletic punishing fighter in Perry there's no way either one of these guys will have this fight the same in my opinion and you know maybe one of these guys will blow the other guy out quickly and there's no need for my concern but if this fight ends up being a war I guarantee you you will see a decline in both fighters in the next two or three fights after that
0: Definitely true. I definitely agree with you on that. And I don't think that 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 this is a good look for
1: um. All I can't believe his management let him go through this. If I was his management, I'm like, you're not taking this fight, dude. I don't care. Whatever. You're not taking it. They had, Wait for they another way.
0: Like he has to be getting a, a ridiculous payday. Has
1: to. They bet if it, if they if they're not getting him a huge payday, his management should be fired. Because I I if I was his management, I'd be like, dude, you're not taking this fight. How much money are they going to pay us to take this fight? Well, they're going to pay my regular salary. You ain't taking it. Sorry, we ain't doing it. Not doing it. We'll go somewhere else. It's not worth it.
0: Exactly. It's not worth it. But, man, we're closing down. We're done. We'll be back next week. Um, We will be back next week, and let's do the damn thing.
1: All right, sir. Pleasure as always. No problem, man. Have a great weekend. You too.